You guys doing good tonight? You ready to worship Jesus? My name's Connor. I'm one of the young adult pastors here. And I know Keisha asked this question, but um, is it anybody's first time? I saw a couple. I met a couple of first timers. Anybody's first time here? Hey, let's give it up for the first time. want to say welcome and I do that because of this. I know going to a church in any capacity is like a big step. Um, it can be weird, it can be scary, you might have some baggage from another church and taking a step to walk in these doors might be a really big deal to you. It might be a really strong step of faith and I want you to know that we don't take that lightly. Um, we are so honored and so glad that you would choose to spend your Thursday night here with us. And we are going to do our very best to take all the pressure off of you and to put all of our focus onto Jesus. Um, he's the only person that can change a heart. He's the only person that can change a mind or a soul. And my hope, and I say this every week, but because it's my greatest prayer, is that we can just encounter Jesus. And when we encounter Jesus, we're marked by Jesus. And when we're marked by Jesus, we're never the same. And so I don't know what faith background you walk in this room with. Um, I don't know the baggage that you're carrying from your week. But I believe that Jesus is the most compelling and amazing person on the planet. And he's even more than a person. I truly believe that he's God himself in the flesh. And tonight we are going to talk about the story of God by telling the story of Jesus. And I believe that when we open our hearts to hearing that story, things in our lives can actually, actually tangibly change. And so here's my, my challenge to you. Maybe if it's your first time, or maybe you're in here and you're an atheist, agnostic, you, you're not necessarily sure where you land on that God scale of things. Could you just maybe put your walls down for a minute? You're not gonna have to quote anything or sign anything after this service. So no pressure, but just maybe open your heart to the possibility that maybe the story of Jesus that we are gonna tell tonight is true that Jesus is real, that he was who he said he was, that he did what he said he did, and that he's alive, and that he's reigning, and that he's coming back. And the posture of his heart towards you isn't judgmental. It's not hoping that one day you'll fall in line to the rules and the regulations. It's that he simply loves you and wants to embrace you and meet you and know you. And so that is honestly my only hope and goal for tonight is that we lift up the name of Jesus and that we just recognize he is who he said that he is. And I know last week uh, we jumped into a series called Moments Before the Miracle and we talked about the table. We're, we're doing moments leading up to the greatest moment in human history, Easter, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we're looking at these important moments in Jesus's life leading up to an empty grave. And last, last week we talked about what's called the Last Supper. And if you were here, we took communion together. And the whole gist of it was the people sitting at Jesus's table were messed up and imperfect, but they were still invited. And that's God's posture for us tonight. And so real quick, before you sit down, I want to read the Bible. Well, I, I want to start doing this thing. I don't normally do it because sometimes I talk a lot in the front, but I just think it's a really cool, it's sort of like an old school traditional church thing um, to just, it's like a posture of honor when you read the Bible. It, your standing is just saying that this has weight and authority in my life. And so we're going to stand and we're going to read this together. It's uh, Matthew 26, 36 through 50. And it might seem like a lot, but I'll be quick, I promise. It says this, it says, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. It was a garden. I've actually been there. It's beautiful. 
And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of even death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face. This is Jesus falling on his face to the ground, and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Awesome. Cool. Uh, could you not, could you men not keep watch with me for at least an hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, and he said, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then he came back and again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he let he left and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas one of the 12 that we talked about last week arrived. With him, a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one that I kiss is the man, arrest him. Anybody seen that meme with Judas? Where it's like, you can just point him out. You don't have to kiss him. And Judas is like, I don't tell you how to do your job. Don't tell me how to do mine. It's like, okay, if you really want to kiss him, kiss him. Okay, (laughs) so Judas kissed him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas says, Greeting, Rabbi, which is an intimate expression for a teacher. And, he's, and he kissed him. And this is one of the most gangster statements in all of the Bible. Jesus said, Do what you came for, friend. Knowing that Judas's kiss was insincere and loaded and an act of betrayal, he said, Hey, don't, don't put on a show. Do what you came for. And the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. The title of my message tonight is this. It's just simply the garden. Last week we looked at the table and how all of us have a place at the table. And tonight we're going to look at what I believe is one of the most intense and intimate moments we're allowed to look into in the whole of scripture, the garden of Gethsemane. And so we're going to pray and then we're going to dive in. Father God, what an honor it is to come before you tonight. What an honor it is to learn about the price that Jesus had to pay. What an honor it is to study the moments leading up to the cross and know that every single part of your salvation and redemption story has weight and meaning and things that can change our life. And so God, I pray that tonight as we read one of the worst, most agonizing moments in Jesus's life, God, would you fill our hearts with the hope that Jesus paid for? God, would you fill our minds with the peace While Jesus was in agony, he brought us peace. God, I pray while Jesus was having anxiety in the garden about what he was about to go through, you you gave Jesus that anxiety so that we don't have to carry it, so that we could have peace. And so would the message of the garden be alive in our hearts tonight as we learn about the price and the preciousness of Jesus Christ. God, it's in your name we pray. And everybody said, amen and amen. You guys can take a seat. You can take a seat. I got a question for you to kick off the old sermon here. Um, I almost called it a sermon, but that would just sound really uncomfortable. <laughs> I have a daughter who watches Coco Melon, so I try to like, does anybody know what Coco Melon is? It's amazing 
how annoyed you can be of a song that's about manners. You're just like, it's like, please and thank you. And I'm like, shut the up. Like, <laughs> so that's where the sermon came from. I literally had cocoa melon on the brain. Um, have you ever had a moment in your life where you have come face to face with your humanity? A moment in your life where you have come face to face with your humanity, the reality that your life is fragile, that you're actually this side of eternity, not an eternal being quite yet, that your life is actually fragile and your moments here on earth are precious and they're numbered and and, and they're not everlasting. Have you ever had a moment where you've come face to face with your humanity? Sometimes we can have these um, in in like good awe-inspiring moments. Like anybody in here uh, hiked the top of a 14er before? The closest I'll ever get is riding my motorcycle up to Lookout Mountain or whatever that that place is called. Uh, Literally zero ounce of desire in my body to hike a 14er. I'll never know that, that majesty of standing on top of a mountain, nor do I care to know it. But a, a lot of people, and you know, you, you kind of have this moment of life is so much bigger than me at the top of a mountain. Or maybe for you, if you're more like me, if you're standing on a beach and you're just kind of looking out at like the vastness of the ocean and you're just hearing the waves crash. You're just like, oh my gosh, life is so much bigger than me right now. And sometimes, a lot of times we have these like moments where we come face to face with our humanity in in like unwelcome situations. Like a lot of times uh, when we realize our humanity are in these moments of like near death situations. Like I remember specifically probably the most impacting moment I had when I realized like I am not invincible. Like I am not here for forever. I, I was driving back from Kansas City to Denver. I had just moved out to Denver. Sorry, I got a little mustache hair thing. Um, I'm going to try to ignore it. If you're like, why is he rubbing his nose so much? It's like, okay, that's just like a personal insecurity of mine. Never mind. (laughs) Um, Thanks. So I was driving back from Kansas City to Denver, and I had just moved out to Denver, and I uh, had zero friends out here. I actually had one friend out here, a guy that I lived with. We were college roommates, really good friends, um, and we, we were hanging out together, but one of my really good friends that actually was a huge part of me becoming a Christian, um, he had just moved to Kansas City. He'd actually been living there for like a year or so, and he was like, dude, you're only like an eight-hour drive away. You should come out here and visit, and I literally didn't have anything going on. I was trying to establish myself applying for some jobs and so I was like okay sure yeah I can do that I can take like a week or so and come out and visit you and so I get in my Civic I drive eight hours through Kansas and I get to Kansas City and literally the only goal I was feeling kind of lonely I was feeling kind of like missing home like did I make the right choice I moved out here to like help start a church and things there just like weren't going the way that I thought they were going to be going and so I was just like man like did I make a big mistake like coming out to Denver and so my friend, he's amazing, um, and he, he's like such an encourager, and he always gives me life. And so we're out in Kansas City hanging out together. Um, and because I was in this weird season of life, he invited me to go to where he worked. It was a place called IHOP. Now, it's not the pancake place. And while the pancake place has a ton of merit, uh, many of y'all were laughing. He's like, he's such a good friend. He took me to IHOP. <laughs> He got me the all-American breakfast. How great. What a good guy. But no, he worked at this place called IHOP in Kansas City. It's called the International House of Prayer. 
And uh, basically, their whole like gist is that for years now, they have had 24-7 prayer for like years on end. It's a room attached to a church, um, and like musicians from all over the country will go, but they have a band that plays almost constantly. Um, and, and literally, it's just a place for people anywhere to, to come and, and pray at any time, like day or night. And so people will come from all over the country, all over the world to like see it. It's literally been going on for like 10, 20 years, like nonstop. Um, and he worked there. And so he was like, dude, let's come out. Let's hang out. And Kansas City is actually pretty cool. Like we would go out, we would eat like really good food. And then at night, though, we would like go and pray for like hours and then go back to his house and kind of talk or whatever and get a few hours of sleep. And so I was there for like three or four days and I'm not exaggerating when I say this. We went to the prayer room quite a bit. I probably got like eight to ten hours of sleep over the course of those like three to four days. Like no exaggeration. I, I was absolutely wiped. But this is one of my best friends and he's, he's just so life-giving. And I'd never been to Kansas City and I love exploring new cities. And so we were out kind of looking around doing the thing. But because I was a part of this church plant, I had to be back by Sunday morning to help set up and tear down and all that. And so Saturday morning comes, it's like five in the morning, I like got two hours of sleep and I'm like, hey man, I'm just going to take off so I can get there at a decent time and get a really big like night's sleep before I have to wake up early again and do the church thing. So I take off from Kansas City back to Denver, I-70 straight shot. And listen, anybody in here live in Kansas or from Kansas, I love you, but there's nothing awesome about driving through Kansas. It is literally, it is a field. It is just an endless field. Um, And so I'm driving through I-70. I'm driving down I-70 in my Civic. And I I begin to hear what sounds like, I don't know, this is just like, and like, and I'm like, okay, like, what the heck? Like, what is going on? I open my eyes, which how many of you know, it's not good to drive with your eyes closed on I-70. I opened my eyes and realized I had fallen asleep at the wheel. And the sound I was hearing was the sound of grass uh, brushing up against my Civic going 85 miles an hour in the median of a highway. No lie. This is a 100% true story. And so I remember I, I like woke up and I'm like, oh my gosh. And you know like when you have those moments where it almost looks like you're like watching your life where you're like hovering above yourself. And like, I feel like that is like the definition of a, like a near death like experience. But I, it felt like I was watching myself. And I remember like waking up and looking at the speedometer and see it like saying 85 and like growing. And so I'm like, oh my gosh. And so I like take my foot off the gas. And my dad was the driver's ed instructor. I don't know why this stuck with me. But I remember that like if you're on ice or if you're like in a median, don't jerk your car back on the road because your tires will catch the pavement and it'll start you to spin or even flip you. And so I knew I was like, okay, I just need to let myself like decelerate, like get to a really slow speed and just gradually get back on the highway. I don't know if it's because my adrenaline was pumping or whatever, but I took my foot off the gas and I just like yanked my car over. And I'm not kidding, I'm not exaggerating. I started doing Ricky Bobby style donuts, like Talladega night in the middle of I-70 in my Civic. It literally, I'm not a NASCAR fan, but everybody knows what it's like when NASCAR racers like win a race, they like do all those donuts. That was me in the middle of Kansas, in the middle of I-70. No lie. 
And I remember when my car finally came to, I was facing the absolute wrong direction on the highway. And so I like wheel my car around and then start like driving. And I am like shaking, like tears streaming down my face. Like my arms are literally like shaking as I'm grabbing the wheel. And no lie, my alignment was so jacked. I'm not even kidding. To go straight, I had to have my wheel at a 90 degree angle. You think I'm kidding, but my wife is my witness. I have paid a hundred times over the worth of my Civic, all from that one experience of doing donuts on I-70. And it was only by the grace of God, no lie, that there was no cars or no guardrails, or I honestly would have been totally dead. But I'm like, I'm, I'm driving my car, um, trying to go straight, and I pull off in literally the middle of absolute nowhere. Like if, if there is a, a soulless part of Kansas, it's where I pulled off. And I went to a gas station that looked like it was from the 1920s. And I got Red Bull because I was like, I'm never falling asleep at the wheel again. But then I call my mom. And I'm not kidding you. This is the conversation that we had. God is my witness. I call my mom and I'm like, mom, oh my gosh. And I'm like shaking and she can hear my voice quivering. And I think just like all the adrenaline is like flushing out of my body and I'm like crying again. I'm like, mom, oh my gosh. I like, I almost just died. I like fell asleep at the wheel on the highway and I was doing like donuts and I was actually like ended up the wrong way, but I turned around and luckily there's no cars. I didn't hit any guardrails. Like it was insane. I almost died. And my mom is on the other line and she's like, okay, okay, well, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And she's like kind of like asking me if I'm okay as I'm like explaining it to her. And I'm like, well, yeah, clearly I'm okay. I'm like, I'm calling you. But I felt like this sense of her like rushing me off the phone. And I'm like, mom, what are you doing? And she's like, sorry, babe. I'm, I'm in a really intense game of upwards with your grandma. <laughs> Does anybody know what upwards is? It's like Scrabble, but the words literally stack up as well. And she's like, I know that if I like leave my board, your grandma's going to swap out some tile and she's going to cheat. So if you're okay, I really got to get back to my game of upwards. I'm like, wow, are you serious? Like I'm literally crying. Like my voice is shaking and you care about winning a game of upwards. She's like, well, you're in Kansas. There's nothing I can do for you. Like as long as you're okay. And I'm like, wow, cool. Love you. See you again. Never. I'm missing every Christmas ever for the rest of time. Deal with that. That's a, that is an honest-to-God true story. I don't even know if she won. That's a great question. She freaking better have won. She better have won. But I literally get back on the highway and drive back to Denver like this, just racking up the damage on my car that I would eventually pay for. But moments when you come face-to-face with your own humanity can be some of the most intense and revealing moments of your life. And I want to go back to the story of Jesus uh, found in the garden. He had just had his final meal with his disciples, his best friends, his, his closest people to him. He just had his final meal and he asked some of his closest friends if they could go up to the side of this mountain to a garden set on the side of the mountain and pray with him. And in this moment, in this garden moment written forever in scripture, we see one of the most intense and intimate moments of Jesus that I think we're ever really allowed in on in his entire life. We see a battle of Jesus Christ, the God-man, wrestling with his flesh, wrestling to conquer temptation, and wrestling in the face of his own humanity and the reality that he is about to die. 
Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking. You're like, well, how can Jesus be wrestling with his humanity? You said at the beginning that he was God. And Jesus is God. Jesus is God, was God, and, for, and will forever be God. But the amazing thing about Jesus, the narrative of Scripture tells us that Jesus was there at the beginning of time. But he's so good, he humbled himself. And he took on human form, meaning he took on flesh and bones so that he could do what we couldn't, which was merge the gap between our sin and God's wrath. And Jesus Jesus took his God's wrath upon him so that we can have a complete and perfect relationship with God himself. And so Jesus goes to this garden and invites all of his disciples to come and to pray with him. Jesus walks off a little bit away from everybody to be alone with his father. And he begins to pray and get this. Apparently, the moment was so intense for Jesus. The Gospel of Luke actually records this. Luke 22, 43 and 44 says this. It says, as Jesus was praying, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. This was so stressful and so agonizing that an angel, a little, a literal angelic being, came to Jesus' side to strengthen him. And it says this, and being in such agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Moments leading up to the cross and resurrection, Jesus is in so much stress and so much agony that capillaries in his face and in his head literally burst from the intensity of his prayers and his crying out to God to the point where his face starts to bleed. It's a real medical condition for people that are in the deepest amounts of stress and the blood starts to mix with his sweat and it looks like blood is just streaking down his face. And this was the prayer that Jesus was praying as he was in agony. He said, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, but yet not as I will, but as you will. And he says, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Jesus is praying against the temptation of his flesh to take his life, his destiny, and his purpose into his own hands. Jesus is wrestling with this desire to escape what God has called good and escape the greater plan of what the Father has put into place for the salvation and redemption of humanity. And he is wrestling with his flesh. But unlike us, and unlike some characters that we'll see here in a minute, Jesus actually subdues his flesh. And he says some of the most powerful phrases in all of Scripture. He says, God, not as I will, but as you will. May your will be done. Two of the most powerful phrases in all of the entire Bible. But I want to ask you a question. And it, it might seem obvious from the from the outlook, but I, I think that there's way more to this question than meets the eye initially. I want to ask this. Why was Jesus in this moment in so much turmoil and agony? Why was Jesus praying in the garden in so much turmoil and in so much agony? Now, most of you will probably be like, well, bro, I'm not sure if you understand what a crucifixion is, but it's pretty intense, and he knows that that is like right down the road from him. And yes, 100%, I think the weight of Jesus' physical death is resting on his mind. 100%. But think about this. 
as I was reading this story, I noticed something, and I don't know why, it just seemed to jump out at me a lot. Jesus already knew he was about to experience a physical death. Death wasn't necessarily a surprise to Jesus. Like, the fact that he was about to go to a cross, the the fact that he was about to suffer and die an agonizing death, as horrific as it is and was, Jesus knew that. He knew that from the beginning of time, he was God's plan A for the salvation of humanity. So much so that literally at the dinner he had that exact same night, hours before he goes to a garden to pray, he's talking to his disciples in a cryptic way about how he is about to die. And don't you remember all of his disciples are like, dude, no, we would never let that happen. We've got your back. Jesus knew what was around the corner. Jesus knew he was about to die. And so, yes, absolutely, I believe 100% that the cross that was set before him, the death he was about to suffer, is a huge weight on his mind and on his soul. But it feels like, it feels like the weight that Jesus is feeling is so much more than a weight of just physical death or torment. It feels like the greater narrative of all humanity is unraveling right before our eyes in the garden. It feels like in the garden of Gethsemane, the redemptive story from the beginning of time is unfolding and coming to its peak. It's coming to its climax right before our very eyes. And I think if we are going to understand fully the weight of this moment of Jesus's prayer in the garden, to fully understand its significance, we have to go back in time to another garden a garden that's found all the way back in the beginning. In the beginning of the Bible, it says that God creates the heavens and the earth. God has existed forever, and out of nothingness, God speaks, and time and space appear. Planets and galaxies start to take formations. God God breathes, and oceans and skies appear. Out of the ground, he creates animals and fish and birds. God, God is creating everything in the beginning of time. And the Bible says that out of all of God's creation, he makes humanity. He makes Adam which means humans, or as we call it in, in English in America, Adam. <laughs> but it's, it's Adam, and he makes humanity not like the rest of his creation. The Bible says that humans were the pinnacle of God's creation. They were made in his image, which has to do with their purpose and their role here on earth. Human beings were made to reflect the character and the goodness of God in this world. They were created to be humanity. Humanity was supposed to be God's representatives to the world and the universe that God had just created to co-rule and co-reign over the things that God has given us permission and privilege to oversee for him until his return. God blesses humans and ask them to partner with him to build and to cultivate the world that God is envisioning to hand off to us. And in this garden, all things worked in harmony. Humanity was co-ruling with God, imaging and mirroring God's character in his heart to cultivate what God had in mind. And in the middle of of this garden, this garden called Eden, two trees were placed. 
One was the tree of life, which represented God's goodness and his grace, which represented what God defined as good and right and evil and wrong. It was God's way of viewing things. And the second tree in the garden was known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And think about this. In God's perfect creation, as he creates humanity, the only parameters he gave these Adams, he gave these, these humans, was this. Not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because humans are made in the image of God. God honors them and gives them a dignity bestowed on them that he does not give to almost any other creature in, in all of creation. God, as a free will spirit and being, gives his image bearers, people made in his image, a will. He gives these humans an ability to choose, to choose what they do so their decisions have purpose, so their decisions have weight, so that their decisions matter. Co-ruling with God is not just a robotic doing everything God says to do because you're programmed. It's partnering with the will of God to see his vision take place on earth. And that's what these humans were given the privilege to do, to choose and to decide as they partner with the will of God what goodness comes out of earth, what goodness comes out of what God was doing. But as the story progresses, a rebellious character is introduced as a snake. Later, Jewish writers would identify it as a seraphim, a snake angel type being. Uh, later on in the narrative of the Bible, we find that this is actually a representation of the devil or the enemy or Satan. And this, this being works to persuade these two humans, Adam and Eve. He works to persuade them to rebel against God just as he has rebelled against the goodness of God, just as he is doing to this day, might I add. He might not come as a snake, but he might come in the, in the form of a narrative that culture is pushing. He might come in a form of something that we see on social media or temptation or whatever. But his work is to convince humans to rebel against what is good and what God has said is true and is right. And so he's talking to these people and, and he's trying to convince Adam and Eve to define what is right and wrong for themselves. And herein lies the first human's choice in history. Do they trust what God has defined as good and evil and eat of the tree of life, which might I remind you is not off limits? Or do they seize their own autonomy and authority? and begin to try to define good and evil for themselves. And we know how the story goes in a moment symbolized by the eating of a forbidden fruit. Think about that. Even that phrase is something that we're common with, a forbidden fruit, something we shouldn't have. It's, very, it's a very common phrase. Symbolized by the eating of this fruit, a fracture occurs for the very first time in the history of the universe. The fall of humanity from the unrestricted, unbridled presence of a good and loving God. A garden that was once designed for intimacy, for closeness, for harmony, for peace with God the Creator has become a place of fracture and separation and disorder that we still feel in our hearts today. And Scott, you can come on up. Make me sound a little more spiritual here as I begin to close. But think about it. God and his design for humanity created a garden. There was supposed to be this 
unbridled relationship, this face-to-face relationship that humanity, not just Jesus, but that humanity could have with the creator God, with God the Father. And this place that was supposed to be a place of safety and security and intimacy became a place of shame, a place of hiding. This garden that was supposed to be a place where humanity could be fully known by God, fully loved by God, is now a place where they hid themselves from God's presence. And we feel that even to this day. But something was happening in another garden in a garden called Gethsemane, where all things that were wrong in the first garden were about to be made new in the second. In one garden, a place that was designed for intimacy and closeness became a place of fracture, but in another garden, a place of agony for the God-man Jesus would become a place where peace for all humanity could be offered. In one garden, man would seize his autonomy and recklessly declare his independence from a God of love. But in another garden, God himself would humble himself to the point of death on a cross and say, not my will, but yours be done. In one garden, man would say, Lord, not what you want, but what I want. But in another garden, Jesus would say, Lord, not what I want, but what you want. In one garden, the serpent would bruise the heel of all humanity, but in another garden, Jesus would crush the head of the serpent underneath his foot. A prophecy given moments after the fall. Moments after the fall, God looked at the serpent and said, you will be an enemy with the seed of the woman and you will bruise his heel, you will strike his heel, but he will, it will crush your head underneath his foot. In one garden, Satan struck a blow to all of humanity, but in another garden, his head was about to be crushed underneath the foot of Jesus Christ. Young adults, this is the gospel unfolding before our very eyes, an agonizing prayer, a moment of turmoil, a moment of stress is unfolding the salvation story from the beginning of the scriptures in front of our very eyes what was lost in the first garden Jesus is renewing in the second what humanity could not do on their own Jesus is bringing back to life in the second Romans 5:19 declares for just as through the disobedience of one man many were made sinners so also through the obedience of one man will many be made righteous 1 Corinthians 15 tells us for since the death came through one man the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man for as at, for in Adam all die but so in Christ all will be made alive in the garden Jesus is reconciling these scriptures he's taking the prophecies of old he's taking the law the prophets the scriptures he is fulfilling them in this moment he's he's looking back reflecting back to the very first garden and, and we're in the first garden where man and woman could not follow God and they said God not your will but mine I will do what I want I will seize autonomy I will make the calls I will make the shots I will be like God God himself is in a garden praying. And he says, well, I have every single right and I have angels and hosts of heaven standing with me. I will not submit to my own will, but I will submit to the will of the Father and in so bring many children back to my God. Jesus is healing all things from the garden to do what we could not do and what Adam and Eve could not do. 
the reason that Jesus is feeling this weight and agony in the garden is because he is about to close the circle on the salvation story for humanity forever so that no longer will human beings have to strive and fight and perform and behave to have a God notice them, but that all they would have to do is to cry out in their brokenness to a God who was broken in a garden so that God would look down on them and have mercy and grace for our souls. Man, I don't know. This honestly isn't necessarily like a biblical thing, but I think about it when I read this story. It's, it, just came, it just comes to my mind. I just think that like, man, I bet as Jesus was praying, I just had this picture in my head of him praying and falling on his face, so stressed, blood coming from his head. And I remember, I, I just feel like he's just having this moment where he's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to be separated from the Father. I, I don't want to do this. And I just feel like he has this moment where like every face in all of humanity flashes before his eyes. He sees Adam. He sees Eve. He sees Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He sees Moses. He sees Aaron. He sees Noah. He sees he sees the prophets, he sees Elijah, he sees Ezekiel, he sees David, he sees Solomon, he, he sees Saul, he sees, he sees Peter, James, Mark, Luke, Matthew, he sees Bartholomew, he, see, he sees Judas, he sees, he sees Paul the Apostle, he sees me, he sees my wife, he sees my daughter, he sees my unborn daughter, he sees my mom and my dad, he sees my grandparents my aunts and my uncles, my friends and my cousins. He sees you and your loved ones. And he says, God, not my will, because my will would be to escape and to let these people deal with it. But God, your will, because I see their faces in my head when I pray. I see their names pop up into my head. The agony and the weight that Jesus felt in the garden was for you and for me. He loves you so desperately and so dearly. It wasn't just because Jesus was about to go through a physical death. It was because he was about to take the sin of humanity, the wrong. He had never done wrong to God. He had always agreed with God. He was never had a need to repent. He, he literally was always in alignment with the will of the Father. But he was about to take every little and big mistake all of humanity had and place it on his shoulders first garden. See, what's interesting and what's amazing is that in the first garden, the garden of Eden, man encountered their first fracture with God. In the second garden, in the garden of Gethsemane, God himself is about to reconcile all that was lost from the first garden. But there's actually a third garden. And I believe that what God wants to do here tonight is found in the third garden. John tells us in chapter 19. I don't have it up on the screen, but John says this in chapter 19. It says, the place where Jesus was crucified, there also was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. See, in the first garden, man had a fractured relationship with God. In the second garden, Jesus was closing the salvation story and renewing all things back to himself. But in the third garden, death and hell lost their power on humanity forever. 
the grip that Satan once had that, that, that formed from the very first garden, the first death that occurred from disobedience with God. It was in a garden where Jesus was raised from the dead. It was in a garden where the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. It was in a garden where our Savior took his first breath back from the dead. It was in a garden where Jesus Christ was resurrected and declared that death, hell, Satan, the enemy, your shame, your past, your guilt, your sexual history, things that were done to you that were out of your control, your lying, your, your addictions, all of that lost their hold on your life in a garden where Jesus was raised from the dead. And the offer of the third garden is an offer for new life to whosoever believes. Listen, young adult, Jesus loves you so much that he said that whosoever would believe in him would not have to suffer a fractured relationship with God, but could know God intimately forever like we were supposed to in the first garden. God's heart and his desire for you tonight is to experience the offer from the third. New life. Resurrection life. Life like you've never experienced before. I think it's amazing that in this garden there's a tomb because a tomb represents dead things. And what the enemy once thought he had killed was actually brought back to life again. I believe there's some things in your life that are holding you back that you think God won't, won't love you and spiritually you feel dead inside. Can I invite you to step into that third garden for a minute? Can I invite you to stare at that empty tomb and see what that third garden represents for you? Man, would you stand to your feet? I believe that there are people in this room tonight that are not experiencing the new life that Jesus paid for, the resurrection power of an empty grave, because you have let some things cling on to you that don't belong to somebody who stepped out of a tomb. The Bible says, just as Jesus was raised, so we will be raised. Listen, new life that Jesus has to offer you is not only for when you die and he comes back and you are resurrected. It is for right now. The kingdom of God takes birth inside of your soul when you say yes to Jesus and the rules and the principles and the blessings of heaven become a reality inside your soul that then manifest to the outside world. You are still God's image bearer. Just because there was a fracture in the first garden does not break what God created in you. You are his image. You were made in his likeness. You were made to represent him and image him and show the world his goodness and his grace. And tonight, if you embrace what was done for you in the third garden, man, I believe that new life is available to anybody in here. With every head bowed, every eye closed, can I ask a question? There are some of you that are stuck in the first garden. There are some of you that are aware of your faults and your failures. There are some of you that are aware of the things that you have done that have fractured your relationship with God. And tonight as we read the story, Jesus suffered and prayed and was about to be betrayed in a second garden so that you could have new life. But I believe there are some of you right now that need to step out of your grave. You need to step out of the tomb that you've been living in because you are not spiritually dead. Jesus has paid for you to be spiritually alive, awakened to the goodness of God, expecting God to do good things in your life, expecting peace when there's turmoil, expecting blessing when there is not, expecting to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. This is what the kingdom of God invading earth is all about. And there are some of you tonight that need to put your faith in the fact that there is a risen Savior who suffered and died on your behalf. 
If you're in here and you don't know Jesus, but you would like to meet him, would you just raise your hand? I literally believe in a supernatural power that the Holy Spirit is going to come and touch your heart. And you're going to feel something in your soul begin to be birthed alive like you have never felt before. And this isn't magic. This isn't a sentimental or emotional moment. This is the living spirit that raised Jesus out of that tomb speaking to you. And listen, there's a lot of scripts that I could give you. There's a lot of prayers that we can pray. But the most honest and, and, and open prayer that any soul could ever pray is, Jesus, help me. Jesus, would you save me? Jesus, I want to know you. I want to meet you. I want to be with you. I want to learn from you. I want to sit at your feet. I want to read about you and study you. I want to be just like you. Jesus, can I meet you? If you raised your hand tonight, would you just begin to talk to Jesus in your own words? You don't have to do it out loud. You can do it in your soul. But that, that feeling that you have, that, that's not an, an accident or a coincidence. That is new life waiting to rush in and change every single thing about you. Would you just open your heart to Jesus tonight? I'm going to pray and then we're going to go into a moment of worship. Would you just pray with me? Father God, what an honor it is to learn about the suffering and the agony that you went through so that we could experience new life. God, things that were fractured, things that were broken, things that were deemed unredeemable, you died and rose again to redeem. God, I pray that for every single person in this room that is experiencing you and feeling you and, and sensing the presence of Jesus in their life for the first time, God, would you break open the floodgates? Would you pour life? Would you pour peace? Would you pour your goodness? Would you pour your grace into their spirit? God, would you literally take a heart of stone and turn it into a beating, live heart of flesh? God, would you transform souls? Would you transform minds? Would you transform hearts in this place so that we can look to you and call to you and say, Jesus, you are our King. You are our Lord. You are our Savior. And we are forever and eternally grateful for what you did. Jesus, we love you so much. It's our honor to worship you and to praise you for you are good. It's in Jesus' mighty and holy name we pray. And everybody in here said tonight, amen. Amen. I love you guys. Let's worship.